and she would come to me for advice and say how she was feeling and that was quite challenging for me so I grew up quite quickly but it also built my resilience and it, it made me aware of how mental health can impact people and how you can deal with it as well. So welcome to the Every Mind at Work podcast. I'm joined by Emily. Thank you for coming today. Uh, let's start by finding out a little bit about you. So um, what led you to this line of work? Um, so I did psychology at university, um, graduated in 2014, and I kind of didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. So I went into recruitment in Australia um, and I knew I wanted to work with people. And that was one side of it. But what I noticed with recruitment was there was a lot of disconnect between employees and employers. And I was seeing it from the perspective of turnover and people wanting to leave their jobs and why were they not happy. So um, recruitment was obviously quite sales driven and that wasn't where my kind of interest lied. So I decided to study my MSc of Organisational Psychiatry and Psychology, which I've just finished. And um, I have a personal experience of mental health through family as well, so I think that that naturally led on to my interest in bettering that in the workplace as well. So that is how I got into it, and now I work with Thrive Software, which is an app for mental wellbeing for the employees. Um, my title is Corporate Wellbeing Specialist, and I work with companies to boost engagement um, in support services, I run training, do supervision um, in mental health awareness and so on. So you said that you wanted to go and work with people and you had family experience with mental health. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so um, my my mum, she had quite a, a rough upbringing. She was abused when she was a child quite severely. And as we know, childhood trauma really does have a knock-on effect. Um, so she's had depression um, for a lot of my life. Um, the onset of that was um, obviously having a child and having a lot of other responsibilities. She also works as a nurse, which we know is a very high-risk industry for mental health. So you combine all of these stressors together. Um, and, and, you know, she's fantastic now. She's in her late 50s and she's doing really well. She doesn't drink. She's become a vegan. Um, she's made something of herself and it's fantastic. But she does still have struggles. And I guess I saw it from a first-hand perspective because I'm an only child. So it was literally just me and her at home. So I would often be the sounding board and, and she would come to me for advice and say how she was feeling and that was quite challenging for me so I grew up quite quickly but it also built my resilience and it, it made me aware of how mental health can impact people and, and how you can deal with it as well. And I can relate to that as well. Um, do you feel that was why you wanted to move into this space? This is why you wanted to help people? Because I look at when I started to do the line of work it was like I want to help people like my dad. Um, is that pretty much the same for you? Maybe, maybe subconsciously, maybe. But that's never been a driver for me. I think more so than anything, for me, I looked at how my mum was sometimes and I said, I don't want to be like that. I want to do everything for myself that will put me in a good position to have a great life and, and feel good in myself. Um, I think it was, but I guess naturally I've always just gravitated towards psychology 
and it was sick form that I started it and when I really found that I was good at it and I understood it and felt that I was quite good at reading people I guess and um, responding to certain situations so I think maybe subconsciously but it wasn't a, a decision that I kind of made because of my family situation. And then moving it to you working in Australia and then now obviously working here, is there a difference in how they deal with maybe mental health and supporting their employees over in Australia to, to how we deal with it here? I think I think the Aussies are they're very they're quite forward thinking, I think, with their mental health. Um, when I was working there, obviously I wasn't working in mental health at the time, so I wasn't as aware of it as I am now. But I could see that a lot of companies that I was working with were kind of making tracks. Um, one of them being Lendlease, for example. They would do like well-being days and they'd have free yoga sessions. And, and that was quite new to me. And, I, and, and at the time I remember thinking, my God, this is amazing. Like companies are doing this for their employees. I used to have two hour lunch breaks and a free gym membership through work. So they were really proactive in helping employee well-being and, and generally the lifestyle is, is quite different. Here it's a lot more fast-paced, longer working hours, obviously the weather when it gets into winter, yeah. we have these, all of these other factors. So, And I think the Brits can sometimes be a little bit reserved and conservative in the way that they approach things. Mental Health First Aid, for example, came out of Australia and it's something that we are now championing because we've seen it being done already but um, I I think that they are sort of not necessarily pioneering but they do have a more forward-thinking approach I think. I think the weather helps as well doesn't it of well, course. The weather definitely helps. <laughs> I mean imagine finishing work at five it being light and going down to the beach. Exactly. That's what I you can't do. do that in London. No you right? can't. Um, now we're talking about I looked into the research that you did into the construction industry and it's an industry that I have looked at as well myself and the statistics, the suicide statistics, especially within that industry are shockingly high. Um, can you talk us through a little bit of the research that you did and, and kind of what you found from the construction industry in itself? Yeah, so I was interested in looking, so first of all, we know that in construction now there's a lot going on in terms of mental health. There's companies like Mace, for example, they are championing employee wellbeing and mental health. But there are, the statistics don't lie. There, there's still a higher than average rate of mental health and suicide in construction. So I wanted to look at, are these wellbeing strategies working? And there, there, there is a gap in the research to say if they are. So um, I was interested in looking at what kind of strategies were being implemented and whether they were actually being utilised by the employees. So I looked at um, support-seeking intentions of construction workers I measured levels of um, mental well-being, I did a psychological questionnaire, but more, I used the general help-seeking questionnaire to give a list of formal and informal help sources, which included um, a GP, a psychiatrist, a mental health first aider, a champion, or your peers, your colleagues and your family. And my expectations were that people would identify that they would be more likely to seek support from an informal help source like a, a colleague or a friend or a family member than a formal help source being like a mental health first aider. Mental health first aiders were the lowest 
ranked in terms of likelihood to seek support. And quite often they are being used as a strategy to say, this is someone you could turn to for support, but I don't think they're being utilised. What I think Mental Health First Aid is good for is psychoeducation and building awareness. But you're then labelling someone as a first aider, which has the connotation of treatment, and that's not what it's for. It's it's for signposting. So, um, so the so the research was something new. It's not being done before. It's not been looked at as mental health first aid has never been looked at as a help source, and especially in a workplace setting in the construction industry. So that's that, that was essentially what I found. Um, I think it has implications to be replicated on a larger scale as well. I was quite limited for time being part of my MSc, but um, it, it, it was interesting to look at. It's really interesting you say that as well, and I, I share a similar belief that mental health first aid is still a reactive approach. Yeah. It's, you know, wait until you're at a crisis point, a rock bottom, and then maybe go and seek help from mm. one of the mental health first aiders. I think there's an issue there as well, as you've said, supporting the mental health first aiders. Also, at the same time, I don't think it still reduces that stigma. They're still your work colleagues. They're still someone that you work with day in and day out just because now they have this you know, title maybe in their email signature. I still don't feel that um, breaks down that stigma. But what was interesting is you said they were more likely to maybe seek help from an informal source. Mm -hmm. Personally, I believe that, I don't know what your research showed, but with it being such a male-dominant environment, I just believe that they don't talk to each other. Did you find different? I, one thing that I did notice was a difference in the generational perspective. So I, I ran a focus group with a, a bunch of site employees and the younger ones who maybe had just been in the industry for a couple of years had come out of university, they were a lot more open to speaking about it, but they said that they would talk to their missus or they'd go online or, or it would be a little bit more covert whereas the older guys were kind of like yeah I just I just have a chat with my mate or my missus mm. or, so it was it was they were more the, the older participants were more open to sort of a, a good old conversation you know over a cup of tea or something whereas the the younger generation they were open to talking about it but they were a little bit more I think secretive about it, if that mm. makes sense. So I think there are ideas behind you know it being a male-dominated industry. There's the male gender role idealization that this idea of masculinity is is toughing up and not talking about your feelings and being a man, which I do think there is some of that. Um, but I think largely it is down to a worry of how someone will perceive you. I think the only way we can break through that is by continuing to talk about it and educating people. So I think one of the one of the things that I have with mental health first aid is that it teaches people about conditions and it labels them like psychosis and depression and anxiety. And people who are trained in mental health first aid, they're not meant they're not professionals, they're not psychologists, they're not trained to diagnose so we shouldn't be treating we shouldn't be teaching them about diagnoses because as we know often they are comorbid and symptoms can present and they may look like say depression but it could be an underlying physical condition so i think that we have to be really careful about telling people about the signs of psychosis because then people will then start to think like that 
So true. So true. And it's something that I, again, you know, I stand by. I remember I was told I was depressed. Um, maybe I was, but I was very quick to have that label shortly after my dad's suicide. And I look at that now and I just, I just feel I was grieving. I was just grieving. I didn't know how to deal with the grief. I didn't know how to deal with the unanswered question of why. All of that combined, I was very quick to be labeled depressed and here's some antidepressants, which, you know, I didn't take. And like you said, that was from a GP that has more yeah. clinical you know, education. So education is so important. So talking about education, where do you feel, does that start at school or is that something that we can learn in the workplace or outside of the workplace? What do you think? I think, I think it should start in schools because we know that the earlier you intervene, the better. Um, and I think that this is, going, this is a cultural change, isn't it? And it takes years to change taboo and change stigma and, and, and um, put in new norms and values. So I think that the earlier that we can start, the better. And it's, I think the key is about empowering children and people to have resilience. Because when, for example, construction, it's very difficult to change the structure of that industry. It's the nature of the industry. But then we look at, okay, well, what about if we recruit based on resilience to stress, for example? We bring in people that are genuinely passionate about the work that they do and that maybe have a higher level of resilience to stress so that we know that in high-risk situations, they'll be more likely to be able to cope with it than someone that maybe has a low threshold. So it's not to say that people with a low threshold can't work in that industry, but then it's about giving them the tools to manage that stress and build the resilience towards it, because you're never going to eliminate all of the stressors. Amazing. And then moving it into obviously the workplace, the work that you're now doing, what have you seen with your experience that companies are doing that's, that's good for mental health for their employees? Um, I think a holistic approach is the first thing. Um, we there's loads of different strategies out there and I think the, the first thing that a company should be aware of is just because one company is doing it doesn't mean it's going to work for yours. A company is like its own culture. There's, they have their own norms, their own, cult, their own values, their own rules, their own climate. So you can't necessarily use the same approach in every single organisation. I think that that can be quite a tricky water to navigate for some companies if they don't really know where to start or they don't necessarily have a big budget in place or they don't have someone who has an extensive experience in psychology or well-being. Um, but there are tools out there like the Severs and Farmer Report, for example, that give clear guidelines about where you should start. Um, I think one of our clients is Ericsson, they won't mind me um, talking about them because what they're doing is, is really good. They're quite early on into their journey, but they've implemented the app that we have, um, but they've also supported that by we're training mental health champions, not first aiders, and that involves a, a day of training on mental health awareness. And they have ongoing supervision, so I will meet with them every quarter to troubleshoot and talk about any experiences that they've had, any questions that they've got. So they've got that ongoing supervision. And they also have access to um, psychologists to give them clinical supervision as well. Um, and I think that that's really important for companies that are implementing support strategies like mental health first aid is to make sure that you have a strategy in place to give ongoing supervision. And it's not just a case of 
we give people a two-day course and that's it, they're a first aider, great, off you go, because the likelihood of them actually utilising that on a daily basis is, is extremely low. Mm -hmm. And that's so true, it's, it's, it's more, I guess, a proactive, longer-term approach than, as you say, oh, they're doing mental health first aid, we'll do that, and then that's gonna cure culture overnight. It's yeah. more about an ongoing process. As you said earlier, it's not gonna change overnight in terms of how we deal with mental health. And I'm guessing it's the same within a company environment. It's yeah. not gonna change overnight. It's gonna take you know, years of, of, of small changes. Yeah. Something that one of the, the experts that I interviewed for my research, something that she said which really rung true and, and I think is a really important thing to consider is you need to profile your workforce. You can't just say, okay, mental health is on the agenda, let's do it. You need to understand who is your workforce and not just demographics because that only gives you a small piece of the puzzle, but what will they respond to? And that is going to take time. It's not a case of just saying, we want mental health on the agenda, let's do X, Y, and Z. It's about saying, what are they going to respond to? What's going to work? And, and that might include surveys, it might include running focus groups, it might piloting some strategies. So we pilot our engagement strategies with a lot of companies before we roll it out across the entire company to see whether it works and we adjust it along the way. And I think that that is probably the best place for, for companies to start. Yeah, I guess that's you know, trying to solve a problem without you even knowing what the problem is because, exactly. you know, mental health is so individual, companies are so individual, so it's about doing that at the, at the beginning, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. So I kind of want to um, end it on two questions. This has been amazing. We, I could talk about this for ages. <laughs> um, but firstly, I think if someone's watching this and they might be, you know, dealing with a mental health challenge or, you know, struggling in some way, from your experience, what advice would you give them? It's... I think it's easy to sit here and say, talk to someone, um, but I think that as long as, you, if you can be aware that you are struggling, if you notice that there's any change in the way that you've been feeling and it's been going on for a while, don't ignore it. I think that we're all very good at spotting someone else who's struggling, but not necessarily able to realise that in ourselves or we ignore it we're helpful creatures, aren't we? We want to make sure that everyone else is okay and we put others' needs before our own. So I think that it is about it is about self-care and self-love. So personally for me, exercise is important, as well as making time for myself and socialising. Um, I work hard, but I will never be the kind of person that will get into work at six in the, six in the morning and leave at 11pm. That's just not gonna work. So it's about being able to prioritise yourself through exercise, through eating well, through socialising, and just making sure that you can talk to someone, whether that be a friend or a colleague, or even just picking up the phone and, and, and speaking to a GP or a helpline or anything. And I think the big thing is about not waiting until the last minute to do that. It's about spotting it early, and, and no one is going to look at you and say, oh, they're being overdramatic. Because we're, we're moving into that stage now where it is becoming more normal to talk about it. Um, so that's what I would say. Amazing. And then on the flip side of that, if someone wants to support someone, whether it's someone at work, family member, friend, what advice would you give to them? Um, first of all, talk to them. It, I think that the, the 
biggest challenge is that we, we, are, we can be quite conservative sometimes and in our heads we'll think, am I going to make this worse? I don't want to upset someone. But if you notice something isn't right or if someone is off and they're not acting the way that they normally do, just grab them for a coffee and say, can we go for a chat? I'm, I'm worried about you, can we talk? And it's about just having that conversation. The other kind of support options that you can suggest might be trying mindfulness techniques um, as a way to build your resilience to stress and relax um, and talk to professional services as well, which I know is easier said than done with the NHS sometimes, long waiting times, but I think that that's where organisations can really make an impact because they have the money to be able to invest in additional support that means that an employee doesn't necessarily have to go through the NHS or the long waiting times. Amazing, Emily, thank you for coming on and sharing all of your wisdom. Um, finally, where can people find out about you or connect with you? What's the best place? Uh, LinkedIn, so I'm just Emily Cook on LinkedIn. Um, yes, that is, <laughs> that is the platform. Excellent. And then I'll link up to that as well. But thank you all for watching or listening. And I'll see you all in another episode very soon.